Thank you, Glenn. Revelation 15 is where we find ourselves this morning, and so please take your Bibles and turn to the very last book of the Bible, Revelation, Revelation chapter 15. Years and years ago, I, I remember the first time I tried to read this book. I was, I think, a teenager, and um, I kind of said to myself, there's no way I can understand this. Uh, it's too confusing, there's too many symbols and images and numbers, and it all seems extremely bizarre, and so I, I'm pretty sure I just gave up. Maybe you've been there before, you try to read Revelation, and you go, I don't, I don't get this, but as I've tried to remind you throughout this study, it's, it's not given to us to confuse us, it's not given to us to, to kind of make us throw our hands up in the air and, and say, you know, who can understand this? Uh, it's given for, first of all, for our comfort, and I've been reminding you of that throughout this book, and, but it's also given to us to, to equip us, to, to equip us to be prepared to live in this sin-infested world. Uh, Revelation tells us the truth, and, and it, it reminds us as well, that encourages us as well, that, that we belong to King Jesus, we, we don't belong to the dragon. We don't belong to the beast. We, we don't belong to this world. We, we belong to Jesus, who is the king over all, and, and no one and nothing can ever change that. And, and so if you are a believer, this book should excite you uh, because, first of all, it, it, it gives you comfort, but it also reminds you that, that there's something coming for us that's way better than, than what we experience here in this life. And so this is a, it's a great book. I'm, I'm sad somewhat that we're already in chapter 15, uh, but it's a, it's a wonderful book for us and for our learning. And so this morning, Revelation 15, just eight verses. I'll read the entire chapter. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations." Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure, bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls, full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Jesus Christ didn't come to give you your best life now. Being a Christian doesn't mean that you will always be happy. You will always have plenty of money in the bank. 
You will always be successful. Everyone will like you. And that you'll never have any trials in this life. Now, unfortunately, there are preachers today and churches today who make it their aim to tell you that that God wants you to be happy and healthy and rich. And if you're not happy and healthy and rich, it's either because you don't have enough faith or maybe because you haven't given enough money. Then imagine losing your job for being a Christian. Imagine your family disowning you for being a Christian. Imagine, for example, living in the first century Roman Empire and hearing this message. Imagine your pastor telling you, God wants you to be happy, healthy, and prosperous all the time. And if you're not, it's because you don't have enough faith. Imagine living at the time this book was written and that was the message you were hearing from the pulpit every Sunday. Just believe more and you'll be healthier. Just believe more and you'll be happier. Just believe more and you'll have more money. And if you don't have it, it's just because you don't have enough faith. And and then, again, imagine losing your job. Imagine your family saying, you're a Christian now, we want nothing to do with you. Imagine the government throwing you in prison and threatening to kill you for being a Christian. If, if you heard from the pulpit every Sunday this prosperity gospel and, and all of a sudden you lose everything, you would say to yourself, you know, I must be a really lousy Christian to have all of this happening to me. Imagine living in North Korea right now and hearing that message. Imagine living in China or Indonesia or Iraq or Iran and, and hearing that message. The the prosperity gospel is straight out of the pit of hell because it confuses this life with the life to come. You see, brothers and sisters, we we don't expect glory in this life. We, We don't expect continued happiness and health in this life. We expect suffering. We expect difficulty. We expect trial, persecution. And then glory in the life to come. We, we are not part of the church triumphant. One day we will be. But, but right now we are part of the church militant. And that means that we are in a war. A spiritual war. But, and, and this is very important, we have something incredible to look forward to. And, and the reality of what awaits us is not just something that affects us in the future. But, but the reality of what awaits us is something that should affect us now. It, it should impact how we live now. And as we look at this passage this morning, there, there are two things that I want you to see. First of all, there is the mission of the angels. And then there is the worship of the saints. The mission of the angels and the worship of the saints. You can almost picture this chapter like a sandwich. Children, let's say that um, after church today, you're going to go home and and for lunch, you're going to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. 
everybody loves peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. And so you're going to go home and, and you're going to make that sandwich. It's a pretty easy sandwich to make. You, you get two pieces of bread and you have the piece of bread here and then you put the peanut butter and jelly in the middle and then you have a second piece of bread. You, you don't put the peanut butter and jelly on the outside of the bread, right? Your hands would be messy and gooey and sticky. And so you got bread, you got peanut butter and jelly, and then you get another slice of bread. You say, why is the pastor talking about sandwiches? Revelation 15 is like a sandwich. The the chapter starts, the, the, the first piece of bread is the beginning of this chapter, and it talks about the wrath of God. And, and then in the middle of the chapter, you have the, the peanut butter and jelly, you have this scene in heaven. And then the end of the chapter is the second piece of bread, and that is, again, talking about the wrath of God. So you have the wrath of God, worship in heaven, and the wrath of God, again, just like a sandwich. And so that's what we see here. And first of all, we see the mission of the angels. Notice that chapter 15 begins, and John tells us that he sees another sign in heaven. Do you see that phrase? Another sign. The word another means that there was a sign before this one. Now, have we seen any other signs in the book of Revelation, if you can remember? We have. If you have your Bible open, look back briefly to chapter 12, Revelation chapter 12, and notice verse 1. Revelation 12, 1 says, and a great sign appeared in heaven. And that sign, if you remember, was a woman symbolizing the church. Now look at chapter 12, verse 3. And another sign appeared in heaven. I'm not going to read it, but that sign is the dragon symbolizing the devil. And if you were here and, and you remember that sermon, you remember that those two things, the woman and the dragon, remind us that we are in a war. We are in a spiritual war. It's a war that's existed ever since Adam fell into sin. And in the day in which we live, the, the war between good and evil seems to be particularly fierce. I, I mentioned to you the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. This is June. We're going to have the pride agenda shoved down our throats all month long. We are in a war. We are in a spiritual war. But here's the thing we have to remember, and here's the reason we don't despair. We know that this war will not last forever. And that's what Revelation 15 is designed to teach us. Because here in chapter 15, John sees another sign. And this sign is telling us that there is an end in sight. And that that one day, the, the dragon and his followers will suffer final and ultimate defeat. Notice what John sees here. He sees seven angels with seven plagues. Now there's a couple of things for us to consider in that phrase. First of all, you might remember that the number seven is symbolic of fullness or completeness. In other words, the seven angels and the seven plagues symbolize that a full, final, Complete victory is coming. Now, you know, there are some things in life that we have to deal with, and they never seem to have a final outcome. They never seem to end. One example of that would be weeds. You can go out tomorrow, and you can pull up all your weeds. And you can go out there and you can spray Roundup all over the place. You can lay down weed barrier 
But the battle is never over. The weeds always seem to come back. And so there's some things in life that it seems like we just keep fighting and fighting and fighting and battling and battling and they never end. But the seven angels and the seven plagues remind us that one day a full, final, ultimate victory is coming. And and that's basically what the last half of verse 1 tells us. Notice it says seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last. For with them the wrath of God is finished. Now, of course, God's eternal wrath will never be finished. Because God is infinitely holy and infinitely just and infinitely righteous, Sin must be given an infinite punishment. And and so for all eternity, those who reject Jesus Christ forever will suffer the wrath of God. But but when John says here in verse 1 that the wrath of God is finished, he's talking about God's wrath in this life. He's talking about the final judgment. He's talking about the judgment upon the wicked when he returns. And, And as we saw two weeks ago, We have to remember that life is like a line. It's not a circle. We are headed somewhere. We are headed toward an end. And one day Jesus will come as judge and he will separate the sheep from the goats and that judgment will be final. I want to warn you, if you're not a Christian, on that day there will be no second chances. On that day there will be no do-overs. On that day, you will not get a a reprieve to, oh, I'll trust in Jesus. These will be the final plagues. This will be the final judgment. And so that's the first thing that the seven angels and the seven plagues remind us. Brothers and sisters, the final victory is coming. This world may weigh on us and wear us down, and, and maybe what I shared with you earlier is a burden to you, and it should be. But there is an end in sight. Secondly, though, the plagues that are mentioned here should also remind us of the Old Testament. Children, you you remember the ten plagues, right? You remember that that when God's people, Israel, were in Egypt, they were there for a really long time. They were there for over 400 years, and they lived under horrible persecution. And, And God sent those ten plagues. Water was turned into blood. There, there were flies, there was darkness, there was hail, there was the death of the firstborn, and so on. But those plagues were, were God's judgment upon Egypt. They were God's judgment upon his enemies. God's judgment upon those who harmed his people. And I think when we open our Bibles and when we read Revelation 15 and we read about the seven plagues, we are meant, I think, to connect the dots here. We, we are meant to go, oh, I remember the plagues in Exodus. We are to say to ourselves, I get it. Just, just as God sent the ten plagues to rescue his people in Egypt, so one day he's going to send t- seven final plagues to rescue his people with an ultimate victory. Now, brothers and sisters, this is meant to encourage us. This is meant to remind us that there is a final end in sight. The war won't go on forever. The church won't be harassed forever. Seven angels and seven plagues are coming. Now, now we're going to skip the 
the middle part of the Revelation 15 sandwich here, and we're going to jump down to the second piece of bread, as it were. Look down at verse 5. John says, After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. You see that little phrase, the sanctuary of the tent of witness? What is that? Well, the word, first of all, the word tent is the same word that's used to refer to the Old Testament tabernacle. And and the word witness refers to the Ark of the Covenant that was placed inside the tabernacle, inside the Holy of Holies. And and so as we read this phrase, the sanctuary of the tent of witness, I, I think that we are meant to have the Ark of the Covenant in our minds. Now, children, do you know what was inside the Ark of the Covenant? Inside the Ark of the Covenant, there were, there were two stone tablets on which were written what? Ten Commandments. And, and so, as the final judgment is about to be unleashed here in Revelation, as we are told about the, the tent of witness, I, I think two things are being communicated to us here. First of all, this is God's judgment. And secondly, this judgment is according to God's holy law. This is not man executing this judgment. This is not some powerful nation exacting vengeance upon another nation. And and this judgment is not on the basis of what man believes is right and wrong. You hear a lot of this today. Well, if that's what you believe, that's fine. This is what I believe. Your truth is your truth, and my truth is my truth. On the day when Jesus returns, the judgment will not be based upon man's truth. The judgment will be based upon God's holy law, not some arbitrary standard of justice, not some subjective idea of right and wrong. This is based on God's law. The the law that in reality levels all of us. All of us. Now, Now the idea that this is God's judgment and this is God's wrath The the idea that that God is a a judge who will bring wrath upon this earth, this is an idea that that is very difficult for many people to accept. Maybe you've met people before who they hear about the justice of God and the judgment of God and the wrath of God, and and they say to you, I just, I can't buy that. Uh, We... we, we have this idea in, in our culture today, and, and many people have this idea, that, that God is only loving, that, that God is only kind. God is like a, a grandfather, right, who, who he's not going to be too harsh with his grandchildren. He's going he's to kind of look the other way at their mistakes. When they do something wrong, he kind of goes, you know, that's okay. And so a lot of people, even professing Christians, a lot of people have a really hard time accepting the judgment of God. But we have to remember the character of God. 
We have to remember who God is. The, the Bible tells us something very important. It tells us that not only is God loving and merciful and kind and gracious, but the Bible also tells us that God is holy and just and righteous. Psalm, seven, or Psalm 11, verse 7, the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. Psalm 97, verse 2, clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the the foundation of his throne. Psalm 145, verse 17, the Lord is righteous in all his ways. 1 Samuel 2, 2, there is none holy like the Lord. Isaiah 6, verse 3, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. That's who God is. Now, you may not like that, but I'm sorry, that's who God is. That's what he tells us in his word. And and because God is holy, and because God is righteous, and because God is just, listen, he is personally offended by sin. He's offended by wickedness. He can't approve of sin. He can't wink at sin. He can't say, oh, that's okay. Just try harder next time. Habakkuk 1 verse 13 says, God is of purer eyes than to see evil, and he cannot approve of wrong. And so think of of all of the sin in this world that is offensive to God. I mean, we we can just think of the sin in our own lives. God says to us in Matthew 22, I want you to love me with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I want you to love me with everything you are and everything you have. How have I done with that this past week? How have you done with that? And I'm just one person. Multiply that by 8 billion. That's the population of our world today. And think of all the sin in this world that is offensive to the holy God. And that's just people living now. Think of all the people who have come before us. You see, when we are are bothered by the idea of God's wrath, it's often because we have failed to understand God's character. We have failed to understand who he is. But when we understand who he is, it's then that we realize that he must punish sin. He must punish wickedness and unrighteousness. If not, he's not God. And our passage tells us that day's coming. Now, you might sit in the pew this morning and you might be trembling a little bit more than normal. You think of your sin, you think of what you've done, and you say, that day's coming, I'm I'm scared. I'm worried. But listen, if, if you are a believer in Christ, you don't need to fear that day. You don't need to be anxious about that day. Do you know why that is? Is it because you're here this morning, you're attending church? Is it because you're a member of a church? Is it because you, you contribute financially to church or to other ministries? Is it because you've tried, you know, most of your life to be a pretty good person? 
No, it's not because of any of those things. You see, Christian, the the reason you don't need to fear that horrible day is because there is someone who has already put an end to God's wrath for you. There's someone who's already dealt with this for you. There's a beautiful word that we find in the New Testament. It's um, the Greek word hilasterius. Not hilarious, but hilasterious. It's a word that is often typically translated propitiation. For example, Paul says in Romans chapter 3, we have been justified by God's gift, by God's grace as a gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. John says in 1 John chapter 2 that, that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. Now, now, children, that's a big word, right? Big word, propitiation. You, you're probably not going to throw this word around at lunch today. But it's a beautiful word. It's an important word. The word propitiation simply means to smooth over the wrath of God. To put an end to the wrath of God. Jesus Christ is our propitiation. He is the one who has smoothed over God's wrath. He's the one who has put an end to God's wrath. And so as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together this morning... We, we can rejoice, we can, we can approach this sacrament with joy in our hearts and we can say, if we are Christians, the wrath of God is finished for me. I don't need to fear it. John 15 tells us, or Revelation 15 tells us that, that when these seven angels come with their seven plagues, the, the wrath of God, the justice of God will be meted out. It will be delivered to all who deserve it. And it will be a terrible day. It will be an awful day if you do not know Christ. As we saw last Sunday morning, on that day, God's wrath will be poured out at full strength. It's not going to be watered down. Full strength. And the unbeliever will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Do not, do not go another moment without dealing with the state of your soul. Run to Jesus Christ. Embrace him as Lord and Savior and escape the wrath that is coming. And Christian, for you this morning, the the, the wrath of God has already been finished. It's been dealt with. Jesus paid the price. Jesus took the wrath. Jesus took the judgment so that, that you will never face it. Now there's a second thing that we see in this passage. This is the middle of the sandwich. It is the worship of the saints. Go back to verse 2. John sees what appears to be a a sea of glass mingled with fire. Now, if you were here back in, oh, I think it was chapter 4. There was a scene in chapter 4 that, 
that before God's throne, there was a sea of glass. And, and children, do you remember what that, what that sea of glass symbolizes? It, it symbolizes the fact that, that before God, everything is calm. And everything is peaceful. God's not worried. God's not anxious. God's not wondering what's going to happen. He's in complete control of everything. Now, now why is this sea of glass mixed with fire here? Well, it's because in the Bible, fire is a symbol of what? Judgment. It's a picture that judgment is, is just about to come to this world. And, and John sees those who had conquered the beast standing before the sea of glass, holding harps. This is, this is all who have believed in Jesus Christ. All who have trusted him as Lord and Savior. All who have been sealed by God. All of God's people are here. And notice what they're doing. They're singing. What are they singing? They're singing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. Now, why is this called the song of Moses? You might remember, I think it was um, maybe a couple weeks ago, I, I referenced um, the Song of Moses from Exodus 15. And, and you remember the whole thing, that, that, that God's people are delivered through the Red Sea, and Pharaoh and his army are drowned, and, and Moses and the people of God stand on the seashore, and they look at all the dead bodies of the Egyptians, and they sing. They, they sing a song of deliverance. They sing a song of rejoicing, a song of celebration. We've been saved from our enemies. Now, here's what's interesting. If you, if you look at the Song of Moses in Exodus 15, and, and you look at what's called the Song of Moses here in Revelation 15, they, they bear, bear very little resemblance to each other. They're not the same. And, and so you go, well, why, John, why do you call this the Song of Moses? Very simply, because like the Song of Moses, this song in Revelation 15, the Song of that God's people will all sing in eternity is a song of victory. And it's the song of the Lamb because it points us to the one who won the victory for us. You know, imagine what this will be like one day. You know, I, I have the privilege of, of standing up here as we're worshiping the Lord. And, and as we're singing, and, and if I pick songs that we all know pretty well, it's great to hear your voices. It really is. It's wonderful. After Lord's Supper this morning, we're going to sing It Is Well With My Soul. And you all know that song. And, and, and it really booms. But that's just this room. Imagine one day all of God's people will be standing before the throne singing a song of victory. You, you've been to um, maybe a, a baseball game before with 40,000 people. crowd gets really loud. There's some um, college football stadiums that hold over 100,000 people. I mean, imagine. Imagine the, the, the loudness, the decibel level of that crowd. That's nothing. One day, we will be in heaven. All, all of God's people, people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, will all be there. And, and we will sing praise to the Lamb for saving us from our sins. 
and for winning an eternal victory for us. And we will praise him for bringing justice to this world. And you know, there's a sense that what we do here on Sunday is, is like a, a little dress rehearsal for heaven. A little dress rehearsal for what we will do one day before the throne of God. We, we have this morning and, and again tonight, we have the wonderful opportunity to, to lift our voices and to sing praise to the one who has done a great work of redemption for us. We shouldn't be afraid to sing. We shouldn't say, well, you know, I don't really have a good voice. Who cares? You're not singing for me. You're not singing for people around you. You're singing for your God who has saved you and delivered you from all of your sins. Don't be ashamed to sing to your Savior. One day we will do that together with all of God's people for all eternity. One of the most famous tragedies that William Shakespeare wrote was Hamlet. And there's a part in Hamlet which, um, in which Hamlet himself says this um, somewhat memorable line. He says, death, that undiscovered country from whose destination no traveler returns. In other words, Hamlet was saying, no one's ever come back from death. Death is the final destination from which no traveler ever returns. I've done a lot of funerals, a lot of graveside services, and you've been to them before. There comes a point at the end of the service, sometimes people stick around for this, when the, when the casket is, is lowered down into the ground, six feet down, and, and, and you stand there, and it seems so final. And it seems like Hamlet was right. Death is that destination from which no traveler returns. Hamlet was wrong. There is one who returned from death. Jesus Christ not only died for us, but he rose. He came back from death. He conquered death. And because he conquered death, death has no hold over you. It has no power over you. One day we will stand before God's throne and we will sing praise for the victory that our Savior has won for us. Victory over sin, victory over the devil, victory over death. And until that day, brothers and sisters, we are called to live for him in all areas of our lives. 
Christianity isn't just 9.30 to 11 on Sunday. We are called to live for him all areas, all aspects of our lives. And we are also called to warn others to flee, flee, flee from the wrath of God that is coming and flee to Jesus and be assured that he has made an end of the wrath of God for you. We have a great future because of what our God has done for us. May that impact how we live now in the present for his glory. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise this morning for your word to us. We thank you, first of all, for the reminder that this life will not go on endlessly as it is now forever and ever. But there is an end coming, an end when justice will prevail, an end when death and sadness and sin will be no more. And Father, we look forward to that day because we know that then we will, with all of your people, sing your praise and honor you for what you've done for us. We thank you for the Lord Jesus who died for us and who conquered death, who came back from death so that death has no hold over us, but we instead have a great and glorious future that is ours by your grace. Lord, help us, empower us to tell others of this. We thank you again for your grace to us, and we pray this in Jesus' name.